Today's podcast is brought to you by Just City, a nonprofit organization working to make sure Tennessee's criminal justice system is safe, fair, and strong for everyone. They're working to increase diversion programs for at-risk youth and helping people and neighborhoods find greater opportunities for jobs and housing after incarceration. Learn more about their work at justcity.org. Coming to you from the ugliest building in the Gulch, it's the Nashville Scenecast. I'm your host, Maddie Gerard. Today we have Steve Harouche, a former Nashville Scene editor, in to talk about Columbus, a feature-length movie by Nashville filmmaker Kobanata. The film will open at the Bell Court this weekend. It's a movie that features a young woman in love with architecture who feels bound to her hometown, and a man who's in town to visit his ill father. The two meet, talk about buildings, and possibly fall in love. After that conversation, we'll have Ashley Brantley in to talk with Steve Cavendish about Chinese food in Nashville, and her experience at the new Chinese place, Tansa. As always, please subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and don't forget to rate us and leave comments. Thanks for listening. Okay, so I'm here with Steve Harouche, the former Nashville Scene Culture Editor, uh, who edited a book of Jim Ridley's film writing and is currently working on a documentary that has a really long title. Oh, wait, no, that's the book. That has a really long title. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what the title of the movie is yet. Okay, but what is the title of the book? Uh, the title of the book is People Only Die of Love in Movies, Film Writing by Jim Ridley, uh, and that will be out from Vanderbilt University Press uh, in hopefully June of 2018. Perfect. And he also wrote our cover story for this week, which is about Columbus, a movie by Koganata, a Nashville writer, the write, produce, direct, all the things. All, all those things. Well, I don't know if he, I don't know. I don't think he produced. He was the writer and the director. Gotcha. So he is one of our native Nashvillian filmmakers. Um, so could you talk a little bit about who Koganata is? Because I don't think a lot of our listeners are familiar with him. Yeah, um, so Koganata is, I, I think, probably um, best known to the people who know him already um, for, um, for his video essays, which he's been doing for, uh, for a few years now for the Criterion Collection and for the British Film Institute and, and other sources. Um, and they are really, if you don't know what, a, what video essay means, um, so he'll take some aspect of either a director's work or a style of film and really kind of break it down um, in a way that really makes you think about it differently. So even though he's really editing existing film footage, uh, it's really just reimagined in a, in a completely different way. I think the metaphor I use in the story is that um, it's not like remixing a song, it's like building a whole new song out of samples of other songs. Um, uh, they really, uh, I th think, sort of transform the source material. So I think, th and he's he's developed really quite a following uh, around the world, really, for these video essays. Um, okay. And Columbus is his first feature film. So if there are any video essays that you'd recommend to someone and be like, this is what you should watch to sort of get a feel for who Koganata is, which one would you recommend? Wow. Um, they're, yeah, they're really all so good. There's... Um, there's one that's called What is Neorealism, which it, it follows this two directors, 
editing the same film and they were both released uh, in different countries, which is really cool. Um, Cause you see, like it says, here's where the, this one stops the shot and here and it continues on for this long in the other version of the movie. That one's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so Koganada wasn't born in Nashville. Can right. you talk a little bit about his origin? Oh, he's a he's a man of mystery. I don't you know I, would, <laughs> I don't know a lot about him. I know um, he's Korean by birth. Um, I know that his dad also lived in Japan for a while. Um, so that and his dad was uh, ha- has really uh, tried to instill like a sense of his uh, of his heritage into him. So, um, but aside from that, um, you know I don't know a lot about his personal biography um even though i've spent some time with him Mm -hmm. um i know that he lives here and that he likes it here um that's good (laughs) um i mean he's barely here right now he's i think he's doing 45 different cities to promote columbus or something like that so So he's traveling around with each uh showing of his movie yeah and it's kind of the way the movie is opening movie it opened in excuse me in new york and la first and then more markets and then so it's kind of on this rolling distribution so like every every weekend there's another place that it's opening for the first time so um i think it's something like 40 or 45 cities (laughs) that he's supposed to be visiting so um yeah if you're in nashville trying to spot coconut it's probably not a good time for that (laughs) because he's barely here yeah, so let's go to Columbus now. Yeah. If you could just start with, like, before we dive into analyzing the movie, like a one-minute quick summary of what it is. Of the movie? Yep. Okay. Well, it's set in Columbus, Indiana, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, a woman who lives there. She's a young woman. She's just graduated from high school. Um, she's working at the local library part-time and um, she really loves architecture and she's really interested in it. I think the first time we see her, she's sort of rehearsing the tour, what a tour guide would say. She's looking at this at First Christian Church and sort of practicing what her lines would be. It's like, if you notice, the structure is asymmetrical, but balanced. You know, she's yeah. sort of rehearsing this. Um, so there's her and she has decided not to go to college because she thinks that her mom needs her to be there for her. Mm-hmm. Um, her mom is a recovering addict. And then the other sort of main character is this man, Jin, whose father is an architecture historian. And he's in town. He had come to Columbus to give a talk, um, and he suddenly falls ill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jin comes from Seoul, where he works as a book translator, just to be there with his dad. It, it doesn't say so explicitly in the movie, but I think that he's living in Seoul. But obviously, from the way he speaks, he grew up in the U.S. Gotcha. Um, and he and his father do not have a great relationship. Um, like his dad seems like he was really involved in his work um, and maybe didn't pay as much attention to his son as his son would have liked. Right. Um, so there's some of that. Um, and Parker Posey is like uh, his father's prod- uh, protege mm-hmm. of sorts, um, I guess. And so yeah, those are the characters. They come together in this place that is full of uh, like all this amazing modernist architecture um, right. and Jin and Casey kind of developed this friendship where she I think talks about architecture in a way that he's never heard anyone talk about architecture before um, and it gets him interested in it even though he's sort of hated it all his life because it's what took his father away from him yeah that so, wasn't one minute I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk 
a little bit about Columbus, Indiana. It's mm-hmm. a magnificent place, small town, but it has like seven historical landmarks because yeah. of this gorgeous architecture. So Coconata visited there yeah. before writing his script. Could you talk about the architecture there, sort of describe some things and how that influenced him? Yeah, so uh, the way Coconut told it to me was that he had been working on a script that uh, wrestled with sort of these ideas of modernity and this and that, and he had always been interested in Columbus, Indiana as a place uh, ever since he had heard about it. So he went to visit there, and he said that being in that place really sort of made all these different ideas in the script kind of come together, and Mm -hmm. he felt like it had to be set there. So J. Irwin Miller was the CEO of Carrier Corporation, probably know from air conditioners or or, (laughs) right I mean you've seen the name before carrier Mm -hmm. Um, so that was the big industry there and uh, he was really into modern architecture and so he and his wife started a fund basically to attract modernist architects to Columbus Mm -hmm. Um, and so you have works by I.M. Pei and Elil Saarinen and um, just all these names like continuing I, I think a lot of people here mid mid-century and think that these were all built in the 50s and 60s but um, Mm -hmm. because there are so many pieces there they've continued to build there so there's I think the the library where Casey works was uh, designed in 1987 or something like that and there's others that have been built in the 21st century um, in the modernist style so so yeah there's 50 uh, at least um, modernist projects it depends on if you include like sculptures and stuff but uh, just from a purely visual standpoint like having these as the backdrops uh, for the movie is really kind of stunning absolutely um, there's yeah there's some shots where you look and you're like you're not even sure what you're looking at at first like, <laughs> like is this a window and then you realize oh no it's it's like the giant interior of this church um, Coconata talks about it too is that like having these spaces that are very deliberately designed to make you sort of aware of the space around you uh, I think was part of what for him unlocked writing the movie um, because he was really wrestling with these questions like is art important does mindfulness matter in the way we exist in the world so the thing is you watch the movie and you cannot imagine it being set anywhere else Mm -hmm. um, to think that he had been sort of writing a script and then gone to visit this place and then those two things that come together is really kind of amazing. Yeah, this interaction of art and people. So we talked a little bit about Columbus as a place, but let's talk about the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have John Cho is one of our actors. Mm-hmm. In your interview with Coconata, it seems that he was sort of struggling with funding because of the representation in this movie. Could we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it still kind of blows my mind to the way this goes so John Cho was actually the first actor who was cast in the film so if you're at, like on paper to me that means like wow like that's a big that's a big name to have uh, attached to your production right yeah um, I mean this this is someone that was in Star Trek Beyond like this is <laughs> you know it's not like oh the Sundance crowd loves him you know like this is mm-hmm. someone who's been in huge movies um, yeah he has a fan base it's yeah. all a fan base <laughs> yeah yeah right um Yes, I mean, he's a star. I don't know what else to say, right? So mm-hmm. he's the first actor attached to the film, and they go looking for financial backing for it and, you know, really have people say just straight up, we don't want to back anything with an Asian-American lead. We just don't think there's interest. Co- I didn't ask Coconata, 
can you tell me exactly how many times this happened? But it was right. it's definitely more than once. So, yeah, I mean, that continues to be a problem. I mean, that's something that other people trying to make films with Asian Americans in them will tell you. Um, uh, also, in the, I, in the piece, I also talked to Chris Chanley, who directed a movie called Yellow in 1997, starring, I think, 25-year-old John Cho. Mm-hmm. And he said the same thing. You know, he's tried to get financing for other scripts and been told, basically put white people in it and maybe we'd be interested. So yeah, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy that in 2017, people will say, no, it's got an Asian guy, we're not interested. But mm-hmm. that is that is the story of this movie and it's a pretty common story for, for people who are trying to do this sort of thing. What I would add, and I'm, I think what Koganada would want me to add is that number one, there are people in the industry who are not saying this because they have any animosity toward Asian people but mm-hmm. just for them, it is an accepted fact of the money side of things, which is that it's not gonna work as an investment. Um, they just don't see the investment potential in it. Just as if you told them that a movie had, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of some, imagine in your mind what, what you think is a, a washed up actor who wouldn't help a movie make any money. Mm-hmm. Like That's the same thing to them. Like act, every actor has a, dollar sign amount next to them like this person will bring this amount of money to a movie we think mm-hmm. and it's not so much out of any kind of racial animus it's just it's when they look at their chart they're like yeah da, 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 Asian guys way down here we're not interested like we only need we, we're only interested in investing things above this line which is hilarious because yeah. John Cho I mean you google the movie Columbus and like all these articles pop up and then they're like hot guy John Cho in this new movie like yeah. The world loves them, but... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it is a, a weird movie in some ways, but then that, that would give people an out to say, it's, this movie's too weird for us. But uh, mm-hmm. in spite of that, people would say, we just don't back movies with Asian guys in them. Um, and the other thing that uh, the Coconata, after we, we, we talked about this for a bit, and he's like, I, he said, I do want to say that there are white people in the industry who are very committed to diversity. It's not mm-hmm. everyone... I mean, he said, so Chris Weitz, who was one of the producers on Columbus, uh, Mm -hmm. he's the reason that John Cho saw the script in the first place. He said, gotcha. He said, I got to show this to John, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And so so here was someone really uh, with his producer hat on thinking, if we got a a big enough name for this role, it's going to help the movie. So was the character, did you talk at all, was the character written to fit John Cho um, or was it? Could it have been a white person that played John Cho or, or played? <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be shocking. I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the character Jin was definitely written to be Asian. Okay. Um, and I didn't ask him this specifically, but I think the Jin was written to be Korean specifically. Okay. Um, so they always wanted um, an Asian actor in the role. And mm-hmm. uh, Koganada didn't want someone with an accent. So he wanted someone Asian American. Um, in the role, it mm-hmm. wasn't written for John Cho, though. And sort of interestingly, like when when Chris White said, "I'm going to show this to John Cho," Koganata was sort of surprised. Not that he, mm-hmm. not that he didn't like John Cho, but just he hadn't really thought of him for this role. And that he said that once he met him, he realized that that he approached acting in a way that mm-hmm. his appearance in Star Trek wouldn't lead you to believe, right? And that that they really mm-hmm. talked about movies in a really deep kind of way. And so I think he was thinking of of John Cho as some, someone like who wouldn't even be interested in a movie like this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't written for with, for with John Cho in mind, but he said that 
uh, after meeting John and talking to him that he felt pretty quickly that this was a good role. That's awesome. He seemed very excited about it. Yeah. Um, so you talked about the producer a little bit being a champion for diversity. What about the rest of the crew on the movie set? I heard that they were Nashvilleians, yeah. locals as well. Yeah, almost all the crew was uh, was from Nashville. Max A. Butler, who was the line producer, he also worked with with another um, another film with the Korean American director. It was called Love Song. It was shot partly here. And uh, Danielle uh, Renfro Behrens, who was uh, one of the other producers, um, you know, when I talked to Koganata, he also said that she is very much someone who's pushing for diversity um it's like it's not it's not really it's not, the movie isn't about being asian you know like um right. the representation question is important because of what it brings up jin happens to be korean and his father happens to be korean but it's, it's not even like the third most important thing about him you know mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah. sort of separating the conversation about how the movie was or was not financed uh, you know <laughs> from the 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 film itself you know, I think there's there's some overlap, but they're, they're not really the same thing because, you know, mm-hmm. like the other thing, too, is that, you know, Casey, Haley Lou Richardson's character, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's not like she's a secondary character to, to Jin. I mean, she's arguably more essential to the story than he is. So it's not, I mean, the story's not about race, but anything where... Anything where you're telling a story about a kind of person who is not represented in movies very often, mm-hmm. we have to talk about those things because that's part of the conversation around the film. But you can, I think you can, to some degree, you can separate the film itself from that conversation because it's, it's not like Jin walks around <laughs> thinking, why don't I see more Asian people? On? And, you know, it's like, it's not, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, that's not the, like, it's we're not just the, talking about buildings right, here. Yeah. We don't need to get into that. Yeah. Awesome. So what do you think that means for the rest of Nashville? I mean, is this like a new, a start of a new trend? What do you think? Um, uh, for Nashville filmmaking. For filmmaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to say, you know, it's one of those things where obviously it's it's great that this movie got made with the Nashville crew, with the director from Nashville. At the same time, it's like it's kind of an unusual production in a lot of ways. You know, it's like I just never know with film, especially like there, there are so many moving parts in a film that I just don't know what one film can do for a city's film scene necessarily to a certain extent i think it's easier for say like a rock band becomes popular and then they can take their local bands out on tour with them and Mm -hmm. and then other bands are become interested in playing in nashville that maybe wouldn't have been interested in nashville before i mean obviously there with the tv show nashville here like i think there's a fair amount of knowledge in the industry that you know like there are people here who can shoot there are people here who can do sound Mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff um when i interviewed john cho i said were you surprised at all to see this sort of thing coming out of Nashville? And he was like, yeah, I guess I was. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I said after he gave it some thought, he was like, well, yeah, I guess there's music industry. Yeah, sure, that makes sense. But but I think his... Country music. Right, yeah. I, think he, I think he was a little surprised. So if, mm-hmm. if, it, if it changes that perception at all, um, uh, then I think that would be cool, yeah. Yeah. And to wrap up, uh, what's next for Koganata? Uh, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. <laughs> But there's something, right? There's, there's something. Yes, there's def- there's definitely something in the works. So I saw uh, this this previous screening in New York, and he was there. He gave he did a Q and A afterwards, and then I I saw him out in the lobby, and I said, you know, I asked him how he was doing, and he said he was just so busy he couldn't believe it, and he said he had to stop saying yes to things that he had just said yes to something, and he didn't really have time to do it, which I mm-hmm. think is the what he was referring to is this 
video essay that just came out from Criterion um, about uh, the motif of doors in Besson's films, but um, I think that's what he was doing. Anyway, when I mm-hmm. talked to him, uh, he, he alluded to uh, a second film, and I said, what, what can you tell me about that? And he said, I can't, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> um, he said, it's a wait in anticipation. Yeah, it's still in formation. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when he said film and not video essay, so mm-hmm. I, I'm assuming that he's working on something bigger than a video essay. Um, and hopefully we'll hear more about it soon. But so he is working on something. I don't know what it is. Yeah, he's he's good at not telling you everything. When <laughs> <laughs> Although I did. We had lunch a little over a year ago and they were just about to start filming on Columbus. Mm-hmm. It's, what's crazy is that it's like barely a year since they shot this thing. Right. And, and it's been out for how long now? It premiered at Sundance in January. Um, and then it opened. It got its actual release August 4th. Mm-hmm. So what's next for Columbus after it premieres in all of these different cities? Is there anything else after that? Um, that's a good question. I, it's kind of, um, I'm not sure how many more cities there are on the rollout. Um, you know, I'm, and I'm certainly not an expert on distribution, so I don't know. <laughs> it's obvious that they plan to open in bigger cities first, bigger mm-hmm. markets first, because uh, that's kind of where they felt they would be able to get some momentum for more of an arty uh, movie, um, but it's still, I think, still showing uh, in New York gotcha. and LA, where it opened um, at this point almost a month ago. So that's that, awesome. That seems good. Yeah. <laughs> good things. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This well, has been great. thanks for having me. Readers' poll ballots are now open for this year's Best of Nashville contest. Vote for your favorite restaurants, businesses, people, places, events, venues, and more. Here's how it works. Go to NashvilleScene.com and sign in using Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. You can submit one full ballot during the voting period, which is August 3 through September 8. Vote today! I'm Nashville Scene Editor Steve Cavendish, and I'm here with Ashley Brantley, who has written a really interesting review of Tansu. Tanso. Tanso. See? It took me three trips to learn it. Of Tanso, uh, the new Chinese place, uh, Manit Shohan, uh, has opened down in the Gulch. And so we're going to talk about Chinese in Nashville. And so I guess the first question I've got is, when I say Chinese... What kind of images does that conjure up for you? Well, first, I obviously go to the food, but fried rice for me is kind of always the standard. If you can't do fried rice well, then just close up because <laughs> that's it's not going to work from there. Um, but really the classic stuff, beef and broccoli, egg rolls, lo mein, hot and sour soup, dumplings, that kind of thing. And the, the main thing I like is getting the right mix of really starchy and saucy. So I like stuff fried crispy, lots of meat, lots of veggies, um, and lots of sauce. I think the setting is seriously like really in my mind, I think Chinese restaurant in Seinfeld, like that's what, that's what comes to mind. That's where sure. the, the places I grew up going looked like that. So, um, and I, I think, and I think what you're talking about gets to like expectations of what we think about Chinese food, uh, here in, you know, certainly here in the States, but I mean, particularly here in Nashville, because 
you say this in the in the review. It's something we've been saying for a long time. Nashville is not blessed with a number of great Chinese options. Right. Uh, yeah. And and a lot of the things, a lot of times when we think Chinese, we're thinking we're thinking sort of like the Chinese American sort of aimed menu that is you know a strip is strip mall Chinese. It's yeah. Uh, it's if it's not the same menu everywhere, it's very similar everywhere. It's across a number of, of styles, so you'll have Cantonese and Szechuan and any number of different varieties in there, all just kind of thrown in and called Chinese. Yes. But it's but it's not Chinese is just not that simple. Yeah, I think it's everybody has a memory of what Chinese is to them, and it is largely the wide American version of Chinese food. So it's like whatever you grew up eating at sleepovers or whatever you ordered after a big night in college, that kind of thing is what you have in your mind. And so when any Chinese restaurant here opens, if they're trying to do something a little weirder or a little more specific, like Tonso's Cantonese, which I did not even know before I started looking into the review. I mean, that kind of thing, we don't have that sort of nuance here. We're all just looking for the good go-to place where we can pick up takeout, Sure, I think. So, and that leads me to kind of, so let's, let's talk a little bit about kind of like Chinese in general. What's the best Chinese you've ever had? Like when Not you, here, right? Does, it could be from, it could be, okay. be from anywhere. Okay. Um, because mine's not from Nashville either. Yes. <laughs> um, the Nam Wa Tea Parlor in Chinatown, New York is my favorite. Um, the first time I went there was two years ago. It was actually the first time I ever had soup dumplings. And the first day I had soup dumplings, I ate them for both meals that day because it was just such a lights on experience. Um, Because soup is my favorite food, and dumplings are probably top ten. So finding out there was this whole culture of mashing them together that I didn't realize until I was 32 was depressing and thrilling (laughs) at the same time. Um, So I just, I think that's one of those things like having sushi in Seattle or, you know, oysters in the Northeast. You have it, you have soup dumplings, how they're supposed to be in Chinatown, and then it sets the bar for you. I'm super excited because I'm going up to New York next week for... The, to go watch soccer game and hang out with friends, but a bunch of us are going to make a trek out to Queens and hit a yes. bunch of dumpling spots. Oh, I'm going to be so jealous watching uh, that Instagram. I'm, I'm dying to uh, I'm dying to try some of these places. There's a um, there's one called uh, well I'm going to mangle it here on air uh, that's out in uh, it's out in Flushing Queens that is just I mean the these. I'm going to crawl inside this bowl. Oh, uh, I'm sure. I'm very very excited. Awesome. So. So where's yours? So mine is in D.C. There's a place called Maywa, uh, which is kind of DuPont adjacent. Okay. Uh, it's over. It's like between DuPont and Foggy Bottom, if you're familiar with D.C. at all. Um, and it's uh, it's not it, it's more of a pan Chinese sort of place. It's not it doesn't kind of hone in on uh, on one specific Stunned. style. Um, but there's a couple of I mean, there's a couple of dishes there that are just. I mean that that's my that's my go-to. They have they have this garlic sauce that is like that perfect sort of blend of a little bit spicy, a little bit you know just a tad sweet, but mm-hmm. it's that deep brown, r- super rich kind of umami flavor. The gravy uh, color. <laughs> exactly, it's that gets that great gravy, and you know that over rice with uh, with a protein uh, with chicken or pork or. Uh, or beef, uh, you know, almost anything. I mean, I, I'm just there for the sauce. Yeah. I'm like, I want, <laughs> I, when, when I think Chinese and I think of the things that make me really happy, it's that it's that sauce that makes me just 
swoon. Absolutely. And I think that's more than in any culture, that is what I find with Asian cuisine is that if the sauce does not stand up or there's not enough of it, that is what I, it feels like the whole dish doesn't come together. Well, and you me. talk about that. Let's talk about the review a little bit, kind of what you liked yeah. and, and, and what you ate. What was your what was your favorite thing? My favorite thing was the lamb dumplings, for sure. Um, they're on the dim sum menu, but you can get them all the time. They are little, brothy, very deeply spiced, um, just meaty packets of goodness. And we had to order, I think we ordered two or three the first time because we just ate them so quickly. Um, they've got a regular version of the shumai on the menu, but I don't think it's nearly as good. It's got fish... Um, can't remember like it has some sort of dried fish on top of it that I actually think if they if they were mixed in it would be a little bit better but the lambs were lights out for anybody that was with us um the mapo tofu which I had never had before you had a, you had a great line in the reviews you said <laughs> mapo which is which is roughly translated as yes an old woman whose face is pockmarked <laughs> which i looked up after and i'm glad about that because that would probably have dulled my experience a little and i know why they don't explain what it means um but that one was really cool because i i don't really ever eat tofu except for in hot and sour soup um so and that one is just speaking of sauces very it is spicy and saucy and they put pork in it which for anybody trying to convert a a non-vegetarian to tofu, I would suggest do it this way. Start with some pork in <laughs> it. A little pork in it. Yeah, and they also um, use Szechuan peppercorns, which I looked up a lot about because I was very interested in this. My husband didn't have the same reaction I did, which was my mouth was really tingly afterwards. Sure. Um, and it turns out not everybody has that reaction, but about like one in four people I've been with have it. And I think it's the same kind of thing that if you get like a prickly mouth after pineapple. Yeah, I, so I get the I get the tingling when I, I've cooked with Szechuan peppercorns a lot at home. Uh, unfortunately, now I have to cook for myself because my wife does does not does like, not like them. Those. But uh, but I but I find it sort of fascinating that that sort of like super tingly, um, almost uh, like the sensation is almost as as good as the taste. Kind yeah, of, kind of piece of it. Yeah, it was it was weird. I was definitely I was like, are you getting this? And my husband's sitting there like, what are you talking about? And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there's a whole thing happening over here that you may not know about. Um, the, how was the how was the duck? So the duck was we did that on the third trip, and it is the whole deal where you got to order two days in advance. Um, there are many confirmation phone calls that go into it before they will really prep do, you. Do on. you really want this duck? Are yes, you really like, going to show pinky up? Pinky swear to me, duck? you're going to eat this duck. So um, we did it. They bring it out. It's very much the whole experience, like the fajita sizzling thing you see at Chili's, where everyone stares at you, and um, that's fun. I mean, it's it's a very festive experience. Uh, then they take it back to the back and carve it. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I wonder if the same duck that was served to us broken down was the one that we got trotted out for Instagram. And I get that if that's, you know, if that's the way they got to break it down. So they have like sense. one show duck. I think they do have a show duck. <laughs> I did not try to confirm this with anybody, but I thought there was a show duck. Um, and he was beautiful and a little terrifying too. But um, I, it was excellent. I mean, the meat was perfect. It was juicy. It was salty fatty in, in the right ways. Um, they do the three different servings, so it's just breast meat that you can make into little kind of tacos, but with um, crepes, which are great. And that, that comes, you know, they do that with the cucumber and the dressing and all that stuff. And then they do breast with skin on, and then they do on pancakes, scallion pancakes. Those for me were a little soggy just because it's like they put the fat down on something that's already a little soft. Um, but the meat itself was excellent and, and really, really tender. Um, there's something you and I have talked about, uh, and which you 
said was kind of confirmed by uh, by this meal this sort of trend about clams yeah. uh, around town i mean we're both big fans of the the clams out at at nikki's coal fired uh, yes. and a couple and there's a couple other places too uh, but the clams here. Yeah. What you think? Well, I thought this was interesting because usually for me, clams, I base the whether or not I love them on whether or not I can drink the broth because the broth is really what I'm usually there for. <laughs> so if the clams are good, that's great, but I need that sauce. This one is totally different. It's much more of like a reduced down dry sauce. And I'd never done the black bean fermented thing before. I see that on all the, the menus, you know, on Chinese menus before, and I've never really di- like dove into that before. But it was really great. Very earthy and spicy and just just the right amount of heat so you could still taste kind of the briny bright bits of the clams um i wish there had been more in the order honestly uh, it, it's a good it, it's a good review it's in this week's scene it's um on nashvillescene.com or you can find uh you can find us uh on news racks beginning on thursday but uh it's not a perfect review what what were some of the things that you kind of picked at that kind of didn't ring for you um a few things are just really the the saucing thing as we talked about before some of the dishes were just a little lightly sauced you know the fried rice the lo mein once you mix those up with some of the other things that came out they were perfect and that was great but it's just it's a little confusing menu wise as far as how they set you up to do that and they will more than happily talk to you about all that the service in there is impeccable as it as it is at all of many shohan's places i think but um that was that was kind of a a, a lower point for me, um, and really it is going to be people are just going to have to get over the hump of thinking about it in terms of I'm going to get a whole big plate of beef and broccoli when I order this because it is more you need to think of it more of like a tasting style um, of that you know you don't go into Bajo Sexto and expect to get a two dollar taco so don't walk in here and think you're going to get you know enough to feed four people for two days like you sure, might sure. somewhere else. Um, and, and that kind of brings us to kind of like expectations about uh, Chinese restaurants in Nashville in general. Um, you know, again, our expectations are often what's delivery? What can we get? Mm-hmm. What can we get for takeout? Or, you know, the, what is the what is the sort of chain experience? There's a, there's a couple of there's a couple of little sort of outposts, sort of the the Sunday brunch um, out on West End is really good, but I mean, I, I'm thinking of you know mo- for a lot of people in Nashville, you say Chinese, uh, and their response is a chain, and so it's familiar names and it's familiar sort of pieces. You had an interesting kind of take on that. You you were you were saying that maybe Nashville's uh, diners are more adventurous than we should give them credit for. So maybe let's. Let's yeah. be a little more adventurous on the menu. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I, that's what I would like to, to see at Tonso because people that go there and realize that it's not going to be basically the buffet-style thing, which I think most people do know, but you kind of forget that until you see contemporary Chinese all over the place and you go in and it's slick and dark and pretty and all of that. So that, that helps set you up a little bit, but you have to be, you know, willing to go with the fun stuff they have some fun with they have sesame golden eggs which are these little like funnel cake fried dough ball things and that is not something you would ever see at a traditional chinese restaurant so go go into it looking for the little fun whimsical aspects and i think um chef chung is starting a new beef chow fun i think like this week i think he's doing more things as this comes along and people he gets more of a following that are the stuff you get really on the street um, places, and I think people will will show up for that. Awesome, 
Ashley, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. And a few notes. We'd like to thank Jeff the Brotherhood for our intro music. If you like the sound, check out Diamond Way from the We Are the Champions album. Finally, don't forget to pick up the Nashville Scene print edition on Thursdays, or check us out online on NashvilleScene.com. You can subscribe to our weekly podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And please drop us a rating or leave us a comment. Let us know how we're doing. Or subscribe and make sure you don't miss a podcast. Thanks for listening.